Hello there. Welcome to the Little White Cabin and our listening series, A New York Yankee in the Heart of Dixie, episode number one. Pour yourself a cup of coffee, a glass of sweet tea, or your favorite beverage, and lend me an ear. I'd like to tell you a story. My name is Oscar Bronx. I was raised in New York City in very trying circumstances for a child. I didn't have a father. My mother was a small-time actress, part-time activist, and full-blown psychopath. To the outside world, she was a minor saint. All compassion for the oppressed, concern for the disadvantaged, a holy warrior for every social justice cause that came down the pike. But to the inside world, in other words, to me, her only child, she was a monster. Cruel, callous, frequently violent. But the worst part was not the physical abuse. It was mental, psychological, the emotional manipulation and blackmailing, the anger, the blaming, the guilt-tripping, the Munchausen-by-proxy shenanigans she'd pull whenever she got hungry for sympathy, the gaslighting that had me thinking I was the crazy one. She had me believing that whatever was wrong in her life, and there was always something wrong, it was my fault. To her, I was not her child. I wasn't even human. I was a prop in the off-Broadway play of her life. And you know what props are made for, right? I'll tell you. They're made to be used by all the actors and stagehands in the troupe, and that's what happened to me. But my point is not to go into the weeds of the abuse I suffered growing up. That's not what the story is about. Suffice to say that by the time I was 15, I was having recurrent obsessive fantasies of murder-suicide. I never pulled the trigger on that. I came close, damn close. But lucky for my mother, lucky for me, I never did. When I came of age, I had this rare episode of clarity that let me squeeze through the bars of the mental prison she had me locked up in, and I got out. I joined the Merchant Marine. I went to sea. I worked on ships. Low man on the totem pole. Ordinary seaman in the deck department. Wiper in the engine department. Messman in the steward department. At least in the steward department, I was able to rise in the ranks. I became a cook. Let me tell you about my first ship, where something remarkable happened. It was one of those old split-house tankers, the kind with the house midships and a house aft. The guys aboard called it a rust bucket, but I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved being at sea. I never once got seasick. I loved the ship itself, this huge metal monstrosity with all its motion and sounds, the groans and whistles. I loved the way it felt and smelled. I loved the work I did. I didn't care how long or how hard or how some people thought what I did was demeaning. I loved it. I loved my shipmates, especially this one guy, Manny Conrad. Manny was an older guy. I was just a young kid and he took me under his wing. Manny was what he called a gasolino, his word for an alcoholic. But he had been clean and sober for years by the time I met him. Manny was just a good guy. He had been everywhere, done everything, and he was wise. You should have heard his sea stories. He told the best sea stories ever. He was friendly and supportive and understanding. You know what I mean? He was religious, but he wasn't pushy about it, not at all. He was the only one I ever talked to about my problems with my mother. And he told me that one day I'd have to try to forgive my mother, not just for her sake, but for the sake of my own soul. But I had just left that hell, and I wasn't ready for that, not even close. I wanted to stay on that ship forever. With every day at sea, 
I could feel the poison seep out of me. Every day felt more and more alive with my own life. You know what I mean? It was wonderful. And then it all seemed to come apart in a matter of seconds. We were coming back to the States from an overseas voyage. We were heading for the port of Mobile, Alabama. And the Union guy comes to me and he tells me I'm going to have to get off the ship in Mobile. Make room for some other schlub, some guy with better Union connections than me. Some boss's nephew was some such crap. I was devastated. Utterly devastated. You know why? I'll tell you why. You know those murder-suicide fantasies I told you about? Well, they had been fading. And all of a sudden, bam, the backward of vengeance. I don't know if you've ever had obsessive thoughts, but you can't just say no to them. You can't just ignore them or banish them. It doesn't work that way. They control you and consume you. I was just sure, absolutely certain, that if I got off this ship in Mobile, I would go straight to New York, I'd kill my mother, and I'd kill myself. Guaranteed. But you know what bothered me about that? It wasn't the idea of killing my mother or even killing myself. It was the fear that I would lose Manny's respect if I became a murderer. You know, young people, they just don't think straight. So you know what I did? I'll tell you. I severed that fantasy. I dropped the murder part. I kept the other part. I went outside on the deck of the ship. I was by the after house on the port side, I remember that. I looked forward, and on the distant horizon, I saw land. I looked down, and I saw the ocean rushing by the hull of the ship, and I knew that with every turn of the screw, I was getting closer to the place I could not be. I couldn't swim, never could. Even in a swimming pool, I sink like a stone. There was nobody there at the time. Nobody would even see me if I went over. And even if they did, it didn't matter. They wouldn't be able to save me even if they tried. I went so far as to put one foot on the middle rung of the railing. I look up at the sky one last time, and you know what I see? A rainbow. Honest to God, a rainbow. It wasn't there before. Now it's there. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen or would see. It took my breath away. You know, people misuse terms like that breathtaking. They don't really mean it. It's all exaggeration and hyperbole. But as God is my witness, that rainbow took my breath away. And suddenly I feel a hand on my back. It's Manny. He's looking up at the rainbow with me. And you know what he says? I'll tell you. I remember it word for word. He says... God's covenant with his children. Those are the colors of grace. Everything's going to be all right, son. Everything's going to be all right. And he gives me one of those hoarse smoker's laughs, and he pats my shoulder, and he walks away. And you know what? It worked. All the dread seemed to drain out of me, and it was replaced by hope. That's the only word I can think of, hope. And I felt stronger. So I got off the ship in Mobile. I went to New York. I did not murder my mother. I did not forgive her either. I simply said my piece. I turned my back. And I left. For good. At some point, I got on another ship. Fast forward, what, 38 years about? To a time about only two or three months ago. I'm sitting in my apartment in New York. I had long since left the sea. When I came ashore for good... I worked as a cook in little restaurants, diners, greasy spoons. I did that until I built enough confidence in my game 
but I thought I could make it as a professional poker player. That's one of the things I learned at sea on ships, playing cards, and I was good. For some reason, the game came easy to me. I was a natural. And so that's what I did. For years and years, I made a living playing poker. I did well. I made a lot of money. Someday, remind me to tell you this story of why I had to leave that life. It's epic. But that's not what this story is about. After I left the poker game, I went into investing. Not Wall Street brokerages and stuff like that. I just invested my own money. And I did good at that too. Let's face it, it's another kind of gambling, right? I found I was able to see the market like a poker game. I could tell when a company was bluffing and why. I could tell who had a strong hand and who had a weak hand. And most importantly, I could tell whether a company with a good hand knew how to play that hand. That was important. Anyway, I made a lot of money investing. I didn't get rich, not by New York standards. But I got to the point where I was financially set for the rest of my life, and then some. But I had nobody. I mean, I blame my mother for my inability to maintain a relationship with a woman, but fact of the matter was, I was alone. I didn't have a wife, I didn't have any children, nobody to leave my money to. And so I was sitting in my apartment, and I was feeling kind of empty and low, and I just shout out, Is this all there is? I mean, I'm, I sit at my computer every day. And I count my investments like some aging nun, sitting in a convent somewhere, counting her rosary day after day. Is this all there is? So I look out the window, and you know what I see? Nope. There's a crack in the glass in the bottom of the window. It had been there forever, and I just never got it fixed. And the sun hit it just right, and broke the sunlight into its spectrum on the windowsill. Just a tiny little piece. About an inch, inch and a half long, you know? I call it a drop of rainbow. And I'm staring at this thing. And all of a sudden, my memory of that time I was on that ship heading into Mobile and seeing that rainbow comes flooding back. I had not thought of that memory in 30 years. And suddenly, like Noah's flood, it comes back. Like this swirling storm in my room, filling everything, filling me. And I hear this shout, Go South! It had to be me. I was the only one there. I don't know why I said it. Go south? What? What are you talking about, go south? Go where, to Mobile? For what? Get on a ship? What, are you crazy? I had long ago given up my seaman's papers, decades in the past. I had long ago given up my union card, decades in the past. I couldn't just go get a job on a ship. That's not how it works. Go south? And so you know what I did? I sold everything. I bought a little car, and I went south. I didn't know where. I didn't know why. I figured it would come to me. I steered clear of the interstates and the big cities. I took smaller highways down the Appalachian route, and at some point, I find myself on a two-lane highway in east-central Alabama. Beautiful country, by the way, if you ever want to go there. And I'm driving along, and I see this restaurant by the side of the road ramshackle little place, gravel parking lot with weeds growing in it for crying out loud. But I'm hungry. I realize I hadn't eaten more than a day. The customer parking lot's empty, but I see a couple of cars at the back, and I know it's the kitchen staff. The sign says it's open, so I figure maybe it's too early for the supper crowd or it's just a slow day. So I pull into the lot. I get out of my car. I step into the establishment, and I am met by... The Waitress. 
the waitress to end all waitresses, let me tell you. And she seats me, and she says, what'll it be? She has this beautiful southern accent. I can't do it. I won't even try. You can imagine. What'll it be? And I say, what do you recommend? And she laughs, and she says, this is the catfish place. Most people get the catfish platter. And this little New York voice in the back of my head starts whining to me. Catfish? These rednecks eat catfish? Yuck, those slimy bottom-feeling globs of blood. They aren't fish. They don't even have scales. It must be like eating a giant slimy slug or a salamander. Blah. And you know what I do? I say, shut up. Hit the bricks. And I banish that little voice forever. And I look at my lovely waitress and I say, bring it on. Fried catfish, hush puppies, coleslaw, baked potato, maybe some beans, and a big glass of sweet tea. Let me tell you, Alabama sweet tea is so sweet it'll pucker your entire body. I don't know if it was the quality of the food. They had a really good cook there. Or the loveliness of my waitress or just the emotional state I was in. But that was the best meal I had ever had in my life. In my life. And you know what? I'll tell you. I chatted up that waitress something fierce. She'd laugh at my accent. I'd laugh at hers. We had a grand old time. The place never did fill up much, so we really got a chance to talk. It was like we were old friends, like we had known each other forever. You ever meet someone like that? It was wonderful. I wanted to stay there all night. When I finished my meal and she bossed my table, I didn't want to leave, so I ordered pie and coffee. When that was done... I ordered some more. I must have stayed there three or four hours. So that night I found a room in a little roadside motel close by. You know these little independent motels you see out in the country? You wonder how they stay in business. And you have to figure it's the migrant worker crowd. I mean, it's like little Tijuana. You can hear these little kids running around speaking Spanish and laughing. It's lovely. Anyway, the next day I go back to the restaurant. I order my catfish platter. I chat up the waitress. I stay another three, four hours. At night, I go to the motel. Next day, I'm back at the restaurant. Same thing. I tell you, me and that waitress, we really hit it off good. No, we didn't just hit it off. We fell in love. Honest to God, we fell in love. Not just me, her too. It happens. I was a good bit older than her, but she was no spring chicken either. I mean, she had been around the block a couple of times. Let me put it to you this way. The window had not yet closed on her childbearing years, so she still had this element of fertility that adds to a woman's beauty. And I got to know the cook, too. A lovely woman named Rosie. Sounds like a New York name. You could hear her laugh every time the door to the kitchen opened. And a great cook. But Rosie was 300 pounds if she was an ounce, and she had some serious health issues. I tell her, Rosie, you got to take a break. You got to go out, visit your family, get some rest, take care of your health. You're killing yourself. And she says, I can't. I don't have any savings. I need this paycheck. I have bills. And I say, Rosie, let me make you a proposition. I'm a cook. I've been a cook forever. I've cooked in restaurants just like this plenty of times. Take me under your wing a couple of days. Teach me a craft. I know kitchen operations backwards and forwards. I can take care of that. Then I'll take over while you take a break. I'll do it on a volunteer basis. You'll still get your paycheck and any tips. 
And if you need money for doctor visits, I got more money than I can count. Let me help you. And you know what? I was gratified when she agreed. And so that's what happened. She took me under her wing for a couple of days. I learned her craft. My God, did this woman have a knack for seasonings and fry batter. And then she took time off to take care of herself. And then she up and dies. Rosie the cook up and dies. What a blow. 48 years old, massive heart attack. There must have been 500 people at a funeral, a beloved woman. And let me tell you, these little mom-and-pop kind of restaurants, they rarely survive this sort of thing. The cook dies, the restaurant dies. That's all there is to it. They're scraping by on tiny margins anyway. They can't afford to keep another person with that kind of talent in their back pocket. Hardly ever. But this place, they had me. Now I ask you, why? Why was I there, ready to step in, ready to take up where Rosie left off? Why? What brought me there at that time? Was it luck? Serendipity? Was it like drawing a good hand in poker? What? Or was it like my girlfriend, the waitress, said? A blessing from God. I don't know. I don't know. So I told him, come on, let's keep this operation going. I'll be the cook. I don't care how much you pay me. Let's do it in honor of Rosie. And so here I am, the catfish king of East Alabama. I'm just kidding. I'm not that yet, but I'm working on it. Maybe someday. My girlfriend, the waitress, she says something about me. She says, I remind her of that Mark Twain story, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Only she says... I'm a New York Yankee in the heart of Dixie. And I tell her, honey, if you're Dixie, I'm good with that. You know, that's one thing me and my girlfriend have in common. She loves to read, reads all the time. And she's not the kind that just sticks to one genre like romance novels, you know, like some people do. She reads all kinds of stuff. She just likes a good story. And when I was young, I was a voracious reader. I don't know, maybe to escape my mother, but I'm thinking... I haven't read a novel in 10, 15 years. Why? Why have I deprived myself of that joy, that pleasure? And that's what stories are, the pleasure. Anyway, we move in together, me and my girlfriend, and one day we're at home. It's a day the restaurant's closed, and I'm cleaning up after supper, and she's sitting there reading the paper. It's one of these little county papers, comes out once a week, you know, and there's hardly anything in it. I mean, there's no financial page or anything like that, nothing for me. I think they survive on high school sports and obituaries. Who wins, who loses, you know. Anyway, she's reading this paper. And suddenly she pipes up and says, Hmm, Little White Cabin. And I think, okay, maybe they suddenly got a real estate section. I wouldn't mind living in a Little White Cabin with my girlfriend. And then she says, I'm going to buy that book. And I think, okay, it's not real estate. She just saw an ad for a book. She's constantly buying books. Her house is like a library. Some days later, we get the package from Amazon, and it's the book, a novel. The title is The Book of Cain, and I think, okay, Cain and Abel, probably a murder mystery, sounds good. I'll read it when she's finished. Then I look closer at the cover, and I see the name of the author, Jeff Lowe. That name rang a bell, not as an author, but like I knew somebody by that name a long time ago. And I rack my brain, and finally it comes to me. You remember that ship I told you I was on when I saw the rainbow? There was an engineer on that ship by that name. 
The reason I didn't remember right away was that he was an engineer, you know, an officer. And we always just called him second. He was the second assistant engineer, so that's what we called him. But I remember his name because he was Manny's engineer. Manny was his oiler. They stood the 48 watch together, and we used to get together, me and Manny and the second, and just talk, mostly listening to Manny tell sea stories. Jeff was a young guy, too, not long out of college, and he and Manny got along real good. And then I remember, you know, my memories start rolling back in, and I remember that he said his parents had a house in Alabama. And for some reason, I seem to remember he said East Alabama. But I thought, nah, just a coincidence in names. And then I turned the book over, and on the back cover, there's a blurb about the author. And guess what? It's him. It's him. This guy I knew over 35 years ago wrote this book. And I say, I got to look this guy up. But first, I'm going to read his book. And so, much to the chagrin of my girlfriend, I take the book. I sit down in a chair, I open the book, and I start to read. And I don't put it down. Let me rephrase that. I can't put it down until I'm done. I stay up late into the night and I read that thing through in one sitting. Don't get me wrong, it's not war and peace. It's a very doable thing. But let me tell you, this book blew my doors off. I'll tell you why. Two reasons. Rainbows and catfish. Now, I don't want to give too much away, spoilers or anything, but it's a story of a kid who, when he's just a little boy, loses his brother in an accident, but his mother thinks it's murder and blames him for it. She punishes him for it with, like, psychological torture his entire childhood. And she calls him Cain, you know, for killing his brother. I mean, this mother was a piece of work. Holy smokes, I thought my mother was bad. And she raises him in darkness and violence. And through it all, he just yearns for a glimpse of life, of hope, you know, of grace. And guess where he finds it? In a rainbow. My rainbow is in this book, and for the same reason... I never told Jeff about my rainbow, ever. And I didn't tell him very much about my mother and all that stuff, and yet here it was, in this book, like it was my story. It was remarkable. And Catfish, there's a character in this book. Well, I don't know if literary types call it a character, maybe a motif or something, but to me it was a character. It was a giant catfish. They called it a river cat. River cat, I love that. And to this kid... The river cat was like both a demon haunting him and an angel bringing a prophecy or something at the same time. Terrific character. You got to read it. And here I am. Suddenly my life is all about catfish. And it brought both the horror of Rosie's death and a new life for me. I couldn't believe the way the story brought everything together. For me, I mean, it was like I got the feeling that something above and beyond was guiding me. Anyway, I go look him up, and sure enough, he remembers me. Not as good as I remember him, but still, mostly he remembers Manny. He loved Manny, too. But I ask him about his story, The Book of Cain, and he tells me when he started it, he just wanted to write a story that people would enjoy reading, you know, would want to keep turning the page until the end. He didn't want it to be autobiographical at all. He thought that a lot of new writers make it too much about themselves and the story bogs down because of it. He called it a tall tale, a classic American tall tale. 
and it works. It works on that level, you know, just as entertainment. It's an easy read. By that I mean you don't have to struggle through the verbiage or anything. You just want to keep turning the page to see what happens next with these characters, especially with that plot twist at the end. Holy smokes, I did not see that one coming. But I kind of disagree with the whole tall tale thing. I call it a psycho-spiritual thriller. I made that up myself. Psycho-spiritual thriller. Anyway, I knew it wasn't autobiographical from his point of view, because I remember him back in the day saying how his childhood was, you know, so normal. I mean, no abuse, no catastrophes, the parents didn't get divorced, anything like that. And I remember him back then saying, how am I going to be a great writer if I didn't have a lousy childhood to write about? He'd joke about how he was jealous of me and Manny. You know, we both had hard childhoods. So the Book of Cain wasn't about him, but it was about me. Not like biographical or anything, but in some important ways. By the way, the little white cabin, it's an actual cabin that he built with his own hands on what used to be his grandfather's farm. But it's also a project, you know, a publishing project for what he calls stories, songs, and marvels. The Book of Cain is the first one he's put out. So I tell him, hey, I'd like to help you with that project. What can I do? Because, you know, Jeff's good at writing, but I, I don't know that he's any good at selling. You know what I mean? And so, you know what he does? He makes me an artist in residence at the Little White Cabin. How do you like that? Artist in residence. And so basically I figure my first job is to pimp his book, The Book of Cain. An excellent read. Go to Amazon and bag yourself a copy. Whether you want just a good entertaining page turner or something you can really sink your teeth into, this is it. Best of both worlds. And do it now because it's not good to make a book pimp mad, understand? We're horrible people. No, but seriously, do what I did. Leave New York and those New York publishers behind. Go south. There's outfits all over this country putting out wonderful stories. Little White Cabin is one such. The Book of Cain is available now, and there's a bunch of other good stuff in the hopper. Check us out. You won't regret it. LittleWhiteCabin.com I'm Oscar Bronx, a New York Yankee in the heart of Dixie and an artist-in-residence at the Little White Cabin. Thanks for listening. We'll try to make it a regular thing, so stay tuned for the next episode. I'll sign off for now. Don't be a stranger. LittleWhiteCabin.com. Come and visit. As Manny used to say, See you in the funny papers. Peace.